So how did this doctrine of the rapture ever come to be? I mean, how, how could it be, how could the scriptures that we've looked at, which so plainly speak about the resurrection of the dead and the return of the Lord, at, and, and, and indeed the first resurrection, which is the resurrection of the righteous dead at the time of the return of the Lord, as opposed to the second resurrection, which is at the end of the millennium, and that is for the purpose of judging the unrighteous dead, where the scriptures say, the rest of the dead live not until. How did this doctrine then come up, this doctrine of the pre-tribulation rapture? Well, it was invented by an Anglo-Irish clergyman, a member of the Church of Ireland, whose name was John Nelson Darby. And before that, there was really no reference to any kind of rapture, pre, mid, post, any kind of that. Frankly, there is no rapture doctrine in the Bible. It talks about how the saints who have died are resurrected, their bodies are resurrected, and they're caught up to meet the Lord when He has reached the level of the clouds on the day of His return. That's that's in concrete, you can't move those blocks because that's what the Scriptures say in both 1 Thessalonians and in uh, in, uh, uh, 1 Corinthians. That's the hard, immutable reality. It's when the Lord is coming back. Sound, shout of the archangel and the trumpet sound of God, announcing the return of the Lord. This is what is symbolized in the Jewish feast of Rosh Hashanah, the actual coming of the King, the blowing of the seventh trumpet, the return of the Lord. Now, the The appeal, however, of this this doctrine of uh, the appeal of this doctrine of the pre-tribulation rapture or the rapture itself uh, was put forth by an Irishman, uh, John Nelson Darby, D-A-R-B-Y who was born in 1800 and lived to 1882. And uh, this this person, um, he he, he was an Anglican priest. Uh, His his teachings came in a time in England and in the United States in which there was much discussion of manifest destiny. And the teachings are against the background of thought of dispensationalism. Now, dispensationalism is a core Baptist doctrine and commonly received among Pentecostals as well. 
And it's where they see the Bible as divided up into specific epochs so that God accomplishes certain things in certain epochs and it's the epoch that is important. So for example, they talk about uh, the age of the patriarchs, they talk about the age of Moses, Uh, they talk about the age of the prophets, the age of Christ, the church age and so on and the end of the age. The problem you see with this whole notion of dispensationalism, there are multiple problems. Uh, I'm not talking about why it's false, I'll, I'll get to that. But the problem with dispensationalism is they divide Scripture into epochal periods so that whenever something that God is doing and says He's doing has been accomplished, they say, well God said it, it was accomplished, we're on to the next thing. They never see the continuous cycling of these events which are fulfilled in part and fulfilled literally but they point to a greater and greater fulfillment. So for them, once it's over, it's done. And so if you talk about eschatology, the doctrine of last things, as being, for example, typed and shadowed say in the period of Babylon or in the period of Egypt, historical period of Babylon or Egypt or the Roman Empire, then they're content with saying, it's over and done, we don't need to be concerned about it. That's what allows them this enormous loophole through which to literally drive a Mack truck and you don't have to deal with Scripture, you don't have to deal with prophetic Scripture. The problem is that in these times we are seeing again the reoccurring of things that once occurred in a prior time and it's bigger than it ever was before but whoever believes in dispensationalism is stuck at the point of saying, oh that already happened and it doesn't matter how obvious the, the, the situations are in the present, they're, they're like people with blinders on as they lurch toward uh, what they think are the next things to happen because they have no answers, they have no answers. Quite frankly, dispensational theology has no answers for where we are today. It doesn't. So what is it left with? It's left with a desire for an escape, a desire for an escape and it hangs on this thread that is an insufficient thread because it's a grotesque and brutal perversion of the plain meaning of these two scriptural passages and primarily the passage from 1 Thessalonians 4.17 which doesn't say that we're going to be caught up 
for seven years to be with the Lord in some secret rapture. No, the only catching up is first of the saints who have died in Christ on the day that the Lord is announced to be coming from heaven and as He has reached the level of the, of the clouds, the physical clouds, which corresponds perfectly to the book of Acts chapter 1 verse 11 in which the story is of how Jesus is ascending to heaven and the angels said, when a cloud received him out of their sight, this same Jesus will come again in the same manner in which you have seen him go into heaven. Right? And when he has <clears throat> come at the level of the clouds, and when the righteous dead have been raised, then and only then, because the living shall by no means precede those who have fallen asleep in Christ. Then and only then will the living be changed in an instant, in the twinkling of an eye, the shortest measure of time, from a natural form, the forms we're now in, to the same form in which the righteous dead are being resurrected and that's why 1 Corinthians 15 describes the fashion in which the dead will be raised and concludes that Jesus Himself, the Lord Himself will be revealed from heaven, the shout of the archangel, the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will arise first in this changed form. The ones who are living in the present form I hate to be so pedantic, but this matter has been so thoroughly confused that you have to have someone literally take you by the hand and lead you through because the, the, the grooves in our thinking have been so deeply cut and erroneously so that, and I'm not even sure doing it this way is going to convince people who want to believe in an escape. But it says, you shall in no means or by no means precede those who have fallen asleep in Christ and will be changed in an instant in the twinkling of an eye, shortest measure of time. And what form will we be changed to? Well, it tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, we are sown a natural body, we are raised a spiritual body same form in which Jesus was resurrected when He arose from the dead. You can't kill it anymore, it can move up, uh, it can be caught up in the clouds of heaven without strings, pulleys or wires. It's a multi-dimensional body, same as what He was raised in. That body is what's raised from the earth and is lifted up to the heavens to join the soul-slash-spirit combination that of the righteous dead, so they have a body now in which to come back and inhabit the earth as it will be with the Lord with whom they are coming. Both those who have died in Christ will have that body and they'll be resurrected in that form and those who are still alive will be transformed from our a fleshly breathing body that, that uh, is governed by 
by the rules of this earth, it will be transformed into the same kind of body that the resurrected dead in Christ, who are now preceding us in resurrection to go up to be with Christ in the air, to come back to Him with the, to him with the earth or to the earth, they'll be raised in that same, they'll be, they'll be transitioned immediately in the twinkling of an eye to that same form of body. That same form of body is exactly what Jesus had when He was raised from the dead. That's a body that could move through walls, it could move around uh, without notice or attention. When the disciples were gathered together on the day of His resurrection, in a, in a locked room, Jesus suddenly materialized in the midst of them. And when they recognized Him, He disappeared and He didn't need to unlock the door and walk out. That's the kind of body that we will have when we are changed in the moment in a twinkling of an eye. That body ate fish with His disciples on the shores of the Sea of Galilee and that body de- de- departed immediately from being revealed at the tomb and told uh, Mary and and, uh, the women who had gathered at the tomb that He had gone before into Galilee. That body is a spiritual body capable of housing the soul and the spirit. So the total man, the total new man, the one born from heaven now is given a suitable and fitting body, the same model as what Christ had when He was raised from the dead. In that sense as well, He's the first fruits of those who slept. That's the reality that we're talking about. That body they couldn't kill again. That body cannot be enslaved, imprisoned, threatened in any way. And such is what will happen at the last day, at the sound of the trumpet, when the Lord returns. We'll join Him in the air at the level of the clouds and we'll come back to the earth. Those who are alive and remain will not go to heaven, they'll go up to the level of the clouds. If you want to call that the heavens, fine, but it's not in heaven as we know it today. And from heaven will come with Him. That demonstrates uncontrovertibly to the earth who are all seeing Him come back and are all seeing the believers coming back with Him, it demonstrates the the reality that if we have borne the likeness of the man from earth, we shall also bear the likeness of the man from heaven. It demonstrates the reality that we are born from above. But that's not the full expression of what it means to be born from above. But it certainly is one of the expressions of being born from above. If we are born of God, we are spirit. That which is born of flesh is flesh, that which is born of spirit is spirit. And in a spiritual form, we live now in these present bodies. So in truth, what is giving way is the enfolding of our flesh, enfolding upon our souls and spirits and that will give way, transformed in an instant, to what we already are and how we are already functioning in the earth. In that sense it won't be new, 
It's, it's, giving, it's the giving away of the earthly tabernacle in which we now dwell, giving place to and making visible the heavenly or spiritual, the non, uh, what is now not visible will then become visible and it will be in the same visible form as what Jesus was in when He was raised from the dead, it's the like form in which the righteous dead will be raised from the dead. Now dispensationalism is an, an absurd way to understand the Scriptures because there is never a reference to time epochs as dispensational. What the Scriptures speak about in dispensing, in giving out the time of dispensation is not a time epoch, the conflation of the word dispensation with the word time epoch is at best crude and vulgar because a time epoch is not a dispensation. What is a dispensation? What does the term mean? If you you have grown up in England or around the British, they call what we call a pharmacy or drugstore, they call a dispensary. It is a point at which drugs, prescription drugs and over-the-counter drugs, it's a point at which it can be distributed. To dispensa- a dispensation is a dispensing, it's a giving out, it's not a time period. Now why couldn't Darby see that? This is ordinary, but you see when you clothe things with religious verbiage, you confuse them. A time of restoration from the presence of the Lord is about the restoration from the presence of the Lord, it's not about the time, the time in which that is done because all that the time block is, all that the time epoch is, is a container of a dispensation, a container of the thing that God is dispensing, it's never a time epoch, it's what God does in that time. You can have that time if God doesn't do anything, which of course is not accurate, God is always doing, and it's an empty dispensation, or it's an empty time epoch because nothing has been dispensed. Okay? Look up the word dispen- dispense and or dispensation. A dispensation is a giving out of something, to dispense is a dispensation. Whenever you dispense something there has been a dispensation. What does God dispense? God dispenses an economy, God dispenses an order of His house, 
because the word the word for dispensation speaking about what god dispenses is a compound of two greek words oikos which means house and nomos which means order or law you're familiar with it from deuteronomy that's a greek naming of an Old Testament uh, happening. Deuta is second, nomi is law, Deuteronomy is the second dispensing of the law. That's when Moses recited and rehearsed the law in the hearing of Israel just prior to them entering into the Promised Land. The first dispensing of the law was from Mount Sinai, 40 years later, as they're ready to go into the land, there's a rehearsing of the law. Hear, O Israel, Moses calls Israel to order, to tell them and recites the law. So the book that contains the second recitation of the law by Moses is called Deuta, second, Nomi, Deuteronomy, the law. So, Oikos nomos is what is dispensed. So a dispensation is a thing that God gives out that happens to be in time epochs, but it's about the thing, it's not about the epoch. When you use the epoch to say God gave out a certain thing and therefore He isn't going to do any more with that, it's over and done, you're patently foolish and have no comprehension of how God sees the end from the beginning and everything He dispenses along the continuum of time is meant to grow in complexity and intensity, starts out as types and shadows, perhaps continues as types and shadows until the reality comes and then the type and shadow goes away. If all you see is the time epoch and that portion that has been given out in that time epoch and you conclude that the thing has been dispensed because of the time epoch that you are relating to, you will miss the real when it comes, you'll miss the fullness that is spoken to in the time epoch. So what does God dispense? God always dispenses the oikos nomos, the economy of God, oikos nomos, oikonomia, economy, the economy of God is described in these two words, oikos which means house, nomos which means law or order, so the thing that God gives out, the grace that God gives out to remedy any condition that is in the world because God continues to try to bring men to Himself, and the way he does it is he gives out the order of his house that is sufficient to accomplish the bringing of men to him in that in the condition of men during that time so at the end of the age he will dispense the full order and glory of his house so that men who are trapped in the schemes of the devil caught in the coils of the dragon, trapped in this 
kingdom of seven heads and ten horns, that they will begin to see God's escape or God's help in the manner of life and in the conduct of those who are representing Him as fully mature saints in that time. This was not fulfilled in the Roman epoch and it wasn't fulfilled as some thought it might have been in the time of Napoleon or Hitler. These are just types and shadows along the path of the very thing that is to come. So no, dispensationalism as a focus upon time epochs is absolute rubbish, it's garbage. And as to the things God is doing being completely fulfilled in a time epoch, that too is as ignorant and as uninformed. But if you subscribe to those views, you're going to be left with nothing except the hope of getting out of here getting out of here before the things that are rolling forward and coming to pass within the end of the age, which are designed to be the background against which the glory of God is put on display by the mature saints collected together as this kingdom that wars against which the beast wars. The dispensing of grace in that time the oikos nomos of God is the glory of God appearing in the fully mature Son, quite sufficient to conduct the Lord's business regardless of what the enemy has done. How did this thing get a hold of the modern church? I have here the corner of an envelope that I tore off that contained, is a large envelope that contained some things from Uh, and I kept the person who wrote to me. Uh, It's uh, Dwight Young who was a professor emeritus at Brandeis University at the time that I met him. I'm not sure he's still alive today, if he is, he's in his 90s. He was at the time a student at um, Dallas Theological Seminary. And there was also another student there whose name was Hal Lindsey. You probably are familiar with these names. My conversation was with Dwight and he told me how this rapture doctrine got a hold of the Baptist church. This was certainly more than 50 years ago that he was there. He said the Baptist, the, 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 the professors were discussing Darbyism and and whether or not it was a valid theology. This graduate student, Hal Lindsey, wrote a book called The Late Great Planet Earth. Actually, he wrote a master's thesis on on the subject of this form of dispensationalism and the rapture. He later turned his master's thesis into a book called The Late Great Planet Earth. Now some of you may not know about this book, but it was a runaway bestseller. And according to Dwight, that's where the Baptists made the switch. They saw that there was a market for this doctrine 
and they ran with it. Dwight later moved up to, and was a professor of, of uh, biblical studies, biblical languages at Brandeis University, from which he retired. And he was in a state of retirement when I met him. He's the one who told me about how this doctrine got loose in the Baptist circles. And now you would think it was the gospel. Historically, nobody ever thought of this doctrine before Darby. But once he popularized it in the context of dispensationalism, meaning things wrap up within epochs, people began to embrace it because they didn't have to trust the Holy Spirit. If you're going to have any measure of understanding of prophetic scripture, the end from the beginning and where we are at this point in time, you're going to have to walk in the Spirit. He's the one who wrote the book, he's the one who is perfectly capable of interpreting it. And the folly of logic and reason and man-made constructs such as dispensationalism will lead you to increasing folly such as the rapture. I hope that I have thoroughly disabused you of any notion of a rapture. I hope equally that I have thoroughly disabused you of any notion of dispensationalism as being how you understand the fulfillment of prophetic scripture. Now we'll continue these discussions using what we have learned about the way that the enemy attacks the sun and the way the sun responds to the enemy. We'll use that template to now continue to deconstruct the book of Revelation because all the events that are happening happen alternatively between the glorifying of the saints and the desperation of the enemy who's cast out of his state of invisibility in the second heavens and who now is subject to the limitations of being on the earth, but he's prepared his descent so when he comes he will have a kingdom of seven heads and ten horns ready to oppress the whole earth and by extension to try to to extinguish, even to annihilate the saints. But guess what? God knew the end from the beginning and the greatest moment of the body of Christ is in the midst of that darkness. And that darkness has no potential to, even, to, 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 to blunt our display of the glory of God, the radiance of God's glory, or to, to represent Him exactly. It has no ability to influence that at all. This is the time for the glory of what God has been doing when He established the heavens and the earth for the purpose of establishing man in creation so that He might be seen in creation as who He is. He is on a path wherein not only will He show who He is, in all of His glory through the corporate body, but He will bring the enemy to judgment as well. And He has committed that judgment into our hands. All right. We'll talk again soon. I'm Sam Solon. See you then. Bye-bye.